0: You are Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Thursday edition of Locked On NBA, David Locke, host of Locked On Jazz, might have had something to do with this whole silly network starting, and Ben Golliver, Washington Post, columnist, author, book writer, bubble liver. He's Ben Golliver. How are you?
1: I'm very good. I actually started the book this week, like officially really dug into it. I'm doing it every single night, cranking away at it. So it's been an exciting week for me and also exciting week around the NBA because we've got news that maybe we're coming back more quickly than we expected and we're starting to get some front office moves, some coach moves, even a sale today. So it's all happening right now. All
0: right, we're going to do it probably in in that order, reverse. So for those of you that hear things dyslexic, Lee, you're perfectly fine you will go to the 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 back to basketball last we'll do the ownership change in utah in the middle but let's start off with philadelphia not missing a boat and almost kind of going back to their origins of the process with a five-year deal for daryl morey so there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle but let me go backwards first ben what does this tell you about the story we were told coming out of Houston that Maury wanted time with his family and it was just the right time for him to step away? What, what's your thought in retrospect on that story now that 10 days later Daryl Maury has signed a five-year deal?
1: I was pretty skeptical of that story. I hope he enjoyed the two weeks with his family. I'll say that. <laughs> uh, you know Hopefully he crammed in a lot of good activities in that short time period. Look, this guy is a ruthless competitor. He's completely obsessed with building a championship team. And to me, I think that they just realized they came to the end of the road there in Houston with that group. I mean, Mike D'Antoni's not back. Um, You look at, you know, is the Russell Westbrook-James Harden pairing actually going to produce a title? I mean, to me, it just seemed like kind of a natural time to pull the plug. You also have to look at the financial questions of the ownership situation, Uh, you know, with with Tillman Fertitta going to the White House this summer asking for uh, bailout money. Uh, for, you know, him publicly making it known that he's taking very high interest loans at huge uh, amounts of money. I just think that we, we could easily see some more fallout there just because of uh, the nature of his businesses being restaurants and casinos and him obviously taking a hit um, in his major revenue stream. So I think the writing was just sort of on the wall. It was the right time for him to leave. I will say this. I am surprised he was willing to so quickly Uh, hop over to another spot. I think I just assumed he might take a year off to collect his thoughts and and maybe let his market value increase. But uh, you know, the the situation in Philadelphia to me, a part of the surprise factor, is just not that appealing of a job. You know, the roster is really locked in with salaries. I think they're one of the highest committed salary team headed into next season. The pieces don't fit. They're coming off of a, a really disappointing and humiliating first round sweep exit. They have a brand new coach in Doc Rivers. And that's just kind of a lot to weigh. But I think ultimately what Daryl Morey looked at was, Hey, this is a pretty good challenge. You've got some pieces to work with. He loves to trade in high volume. There's going to be a lot of opportunities to swing deals as he wants to remake that roster. And so you put all that together, probably get a nice paycheck from the Sixers ownership group. That's certainly been looking for a long-term answer in the front office after so many changes in previous years, it starts to make a little bit more sense, but I'll admit, I was surprised. You know, I thought, uh, They were probably going to have to go for with Elton Brand in that main seat. And I think it's a major, major upgrade to go from kind of a first-time GM who's had a number of his bold moves backfire to a guy like Daryl Morey with an established track record of winning, of a clear vision for how you put things together, and a lot of experience building around superstar players.
0: All right, let's go to that roster for a second. The Al Horford-Joel Embiid move. Is that a classified in in a set-in-stone failure, and the first thing you have to do is move Al Horford?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is I'm not sure anybody on that roster should be viewed as untouchable, including both of their star-level guys, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. Now, are you going to want to try to trade an Al Horford and a Tobias Harris before you part with one of those two stars? For sure. But to me, the evidence that those two guys really work together on a championship level is pretty minimal. Uh, We really haven't seen it, and from a personality standpoint, from an accountability standpoint, I have real questions that that's the the right group to go. So to me, I think the lesson from last year is they absolutely need more spacing on offense. They absolutely need need more versatility. They need to improve their perimeter you know, weapons and options. They need a better ball handler to kind of help Simmons uh, carry that load. They have a lot of needs, And, and what they don't need is the biggest, bulkiest, front line really at the NBA. Right. So to me, there's going to have to be, uh, you know, some splitting up of that core four group, you know, the guys with the four giant salaries, Simmons, Embiid, Harris, uh, you know, and Horford. So I would be shocked if all of those guys make it uh, back to Philadelphia after this uh, abbreviated free agency period, I think that the Sixers just need to look in the mirror and admit, you know, this formula did not work last year. It's not likely to work going forward. It's not just a matter of uh, crossing your fingers and, and hoping it will work better with a new coach. That There are more fundamental flaws there.
0: Is there something funky about hiring Doc Rivers and then hi- hi- hiring Daryl Morey right afterwards?
1: Well, the funky part to me is that they were also looking at Mike D'Antoni, right? And then they go ahead and go the other direction towards Doc Rivers. I do think people should remember, I believe Doc Rivers and Daryl Morey actually overlapped in Boston when, when uh, Morey was first getting into the NBA and Doc Rivers first got there. So there is a little bit of a, a pre-existing relationship there. I think the other factor you're going to want to consider, though, is, you know, Doc has been a president himself. And when he uh, was the, the president duty was taken away from him with the Clippers, he had a very close and longtime relationship with Lawrence Frank. And I think that was a pretty equal power balance. I think mean, there was a lot of two-way communication going on there. And so Doc was still a very empowered coach. Now, you look at the Rockets. I mean, they were playing Maury Ball the whole way through, right? He was not necessarily dictating to his coaches how things would be playing, but he was absolutely selecting certain players to play the way he wanted. Um, and he was really crafting things uh, you know, more than the average GM would be. So I think there's going to be an adjustment there for Doc Rivers to understand, like, you know, this is a different power dynamic. This is a different setup. And I think Daryl Morey only takes that job in Philadelphia if he's sort of been assured that he's going to have uh, you know, a real green light to do things his way and to, to have a, you know, a good base of power within that organization.
0: The one thing I've always felt Daryl Morey deserved better credit for was the Robert Covingtons of the world, the Daniel Houses of the world, the Gerald Green, frankly, of the world. He, he found a way to get productivity out of zero salaries, and uh and second round picks philadelphia needs that
1: they absolutely do and the trick there was just realizing what types of players complemented his best guys right it was all about the chemistry it was all about the basketball fit right now sometimes he took chances on personality so you might say that's not necessarily a a chemistry uh, equation that's more of just like a basketball fit equation but um, he was excellent at finding the kinds of guys who could play off Harden, who would be happy and comfortable playing off Harden, and who could also cover up for Harden's weaknesses. So to me, the first step in terms of you know overhauling this roster, he's got to go in and decide, do I want to build around Joel Embiid? Can I trust him from a health standpoint? Can I find players who complement him well? And do I want to build around Ben Simmons? And, and do I believe those two guys can work together? Once he answers those questions, I have a lot of faith in uh, Daryl Morey to be able to go out there and find those bit players around whatever he deems to be his core. But you know, even though this is kind of a veteran-dominated team at this point, even though a lot of those guys have been there for a while, at least they're core guys, uh, I think that he's going to you know, view this almost as like just a, you know, step one of a long-term project. Now that doesn't mean it's going to be a a rebuilding effort or a trust the process type situation. Not, it's not going to be a sequel, but I do think he's going to want to start from square one and, and really determine which of these guys are worth building around because you could build totally different teams here if you wanted, right? If you wanted to build around Embiid uh, you know, the kinds of players you'd be looking for is a more natural point guard option. Uh, You you want some three and D wings. If you uh, build around Ben Simmons, You're just really concerned about shooters and and maybe a stretch five who can stay out of his way. So uh, you, you would play at totally different paces. You want to play super fast with Simmons. You want to probably play slower uh, because of Embiid's size and and height and bulk. And so, uh, you know, that presents some questions if you want to keep both of them, but he could take this in a lot of different directions if he chose to just build around one of those guys.
0: So Houston took 46% of their shots as threes last year. Daryl Morey leading the way, Mike D'Antoni coaching. Clippers ranked 17th in the league, took 34% rather than the 46 Houston took, and Philadelphia took 33%. What does a Doc Rivers coached Daryl Morey GM, Philadelphia roster take next year?
1: Well, the the amazing part here, too, go the other way. Say, uh, how many minutes did the, the Rockets play a traditional center, you know, once it really mattered? How many minutes did the Clippers play a traditional center when it really mattered? He, Doc Rivers actually preferred to go with Montrez Harrell, especially in the playoffs. And then how many minutes did the Sixers play a traditional center with Joel Embiid? And it's going to be a lot higher than either one of those other two situations, right? So there are clear conflicts stylistically both ways, right? Uh, the, the Sixers, as currently constructed, are too big for Maury's current preferences, and they don't shoot nearly enough threes for Maury's preferences, And the stars are implicated on both of those factors. You know, Ben Simmons is an issue there, and Joel Embiid is an issue there. So, uh, again, he's uh, playing with a totally different type of clay as he looks at this roster.
0: Got any guesses on Philadelphia's starting five by the time we start? Whenever we start?
1: Man, well, here, I'll tell you what I'm rooting for. I'm rooting for the most trades possible. Like, I would actually like to see a scenario where he like totally clears house and just undoes all of Elton Brand stuff. I think that would be kind of phenomenal to watch. It would just be a hilarious story. If I had to pick one, and I don't know if this is controversial or not, I would build around Ben Simmons. Um, I think that he's a little bit more natural of a player to build around, uh, especially in terms of versatility and where the game is going. I think that with Embiid, I just question the health, I question the conditioning, I question the position. Um, You know, is he ever going to be able to kind of leave an imprint on the game, just given the the way he plays that center position? I think it's a little bit easier to build a a postseason winner around a guy like Nikola Jokic um, rather than Embiid. And there's questions if you can build a title team around Jokic. So I would have questions, uh, you know, very serious questions about whether you could do that around Embiid. And I also just wonder, like, uh, you know, coming out of that playoffs in the bubble, it just kind of felt like that entire situation had run its course and Bede was so frustrated i think some of that was due to the the relationship with coach Brett Brown uh you know obviously Embiid tweeted his welcome uh to doc rivers which you do like to see from a franchise player but i i don't know if i had to pick one i would try to build things around simmons i would try to turn this into a fast and loose type team i would try to be you know spraying three pointers keeping you know three or four three point options around simmons And I'd be trying to have a little bit more fun. You know, the Sixers have not had a lot of fun. They've been a real drag to watch these last couple of years. And I I don't think they're that far away from uh, the type of vision that I'm describing.
0: Got some contracts that are going to be incredible to watch. Tobias Harris has four years left at 34, 36, 37, and 39 million. Al Horford has 27, 27, and 26, 5, and 3 years left. And Joel Embiid has 29, 31, 5, and 33, 6. That, those are the three. We'll see what Daryl Morey is able to play with. He's never been fearful of making a deal. Today's show is brought to you by rockauto.com. That's that's not a difficult deal to make, in fact. It's... uh reasonably low prices not philadelphia 76ers contracts it's actually <laughs> the opposite in fact it's reliably low prices it's all the parts your car will ever need it's rockauto.com that's everything from engine control modules to motor oil to new carpet to windshield wipers rockauto.com even if you're not like a car guy ben gulliver i'm talking to you uh there are certain things you can still save money on rather than buying at the dealership or at the Brick and mortar store, car. you know, like you can change your own windshield wipers. It might rain someday in Southern California. It really might, Ben. You'll need it then. Go to rockauto.com. They're always offering the lowest prices possible rather than changing prices based on what the market says or whether you're a do-it-yourselfer or a professional. It's always the same. Go to rockauto.com. When you check out, make sure you put Locked On in the How Did You Hear About Us box so they know who sent you. Amazing selection. Reliably low prices. All the parts your car will ever need rockauto.com. Locked On is launching two really cool, fun podcasts. I'm kind of excited to tell Ben about it. Ben, one of them you're going to use for preparation. Are you ready?
1: Is it it Chad Ford's?
0: Well, no. Chad Ford's is backing up and you can use that for preparation. Chad Ford's NBA Big Board is back. We're launching a new podcast called Locked On NBA Draft. And what it is is a compilation or... More, maybe I should say this: It's a curated compilation of all of our local hosts' great work on the draft. So, if like four or five hosts talk about a prospect, we'll edit it all together in one podcast, so you can get all the different opinions on that player right there, rather than having to go hunt from Locked On Hawks to Locked On Warriors to Locked On Chad Ford's to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board. So, it's Locked On NBA Draft, and it will be launching here in the next day or so. The other one is Locked On Presents. And we'll have a, uh, that's kind of our 30 for 30. And Locked On Presents will have its opening story coming up about Kyle Dugger, the second round draft pick of the Patriots going through the NFL draft sequence. So those two brand new shows on the Locked On Podcast Network. Uh, the Utah Jazz sold their franchise, uh, the Miller family sold to Ryan Smith who started company called Qualtrics, he recently sold it for $8 billion. I believe he owned 88% of it. When he sold it, it's actually like the largest software deal ever done, including like anything out of Silicon Valley. It's quite remarkable. Um, He played junior jazz basketball when he was a kid. Uh, which is the youth program in Utah. So this is a diehard jazz fan. And the maybe most remarkable part about this story is that a small market team may have actually found someone who will keep the franchise in that small market, which is obviously hard to do. What strikes you about this uh, story, Ben Goliver of the Utah jazz, one of the Miller family, one of the longest running owners in the league. uh, Actually the third highest winning percentage in the NBA, since the day they took over uh, ownership, uh, only behind the Lakers and the Spurs uh, the only teams that have a higher winning percentage. Uh, what's, what's your thoughts on this deal?
1: Well, there's a lot of layers to it. I think that we should start with the Miller family and just kind of tip our hat to them. I mean, I've always admired the way that they did business. I mean, you never saw the ownership group out there making headlines out there with controversial statements. I mean, they were very old-school um, and it, pay, I mean, it, it worked for them. They did it their way. I mean, you look at, I think, 20 straight playoff appearances at one point, multiple finals there, obviously with Stockton and Malone. Um, you know, their ownership approach of in terms of what they valued—consistency, reliability, work ethic—all those things—it showed through in who they hired as the coach. You know, whether it's Jerry Sloan, you know, uh, right on down the list to Quinn Snyder, it showed through on the kinds of players that they've. Uh, Targeted in the draft. I mean, it was just always that organization or, or even their front office executives, uh, you know, from late to, uh, you know, to Dennis Lindsay. I mean, they're always just a, a certain type, uh, you know, that's a Utah jazz guy. And that speaks very well of ownership, especially when you're winning at the levels uh, that you've described. Uh, I think that, you know, the market factor for them has always been a challenge. I mean, that's been going back in my entire lifetime. You know, people will always say, well, do players want to, you know, play in Salt Lake city, whatever those kinds of conversations might be. They also just had a no excuses approach to it. Right. I mean, it's just like, Hey, we, we know how we want to play. We know what kind of players we're going to target. We're going to roll the ball out. We're going to, you know, go out and win consistently 50 games year after year after year. I always appreciated that because you do see some other small market owners, they start to, you know, uh, whine a little bit or complain and say oh it's not a level playing field oh it's, there's not parody or whatever else and i don't think we only need to judge the success of franchises based on titles i think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of valor and honor to being able to put out a consistent winner that you keep your fan base invested it in for decades uh you know decade after decade after decade with very few drops off in, in quality of play so from that standpoint, I think that, uh, you know, this is probably a, a sad moment for some jazz fans just because it's a transition, because it's the end of an ownership group. There's a lot of fans out there that probably haven't, uh, you know, known any other era of jazz basketball. And so I think that's probably where the, the conversation needs to start. Were you, were you hearing any of that from the your listeners there in Utah in terms of like, oh, wow, like, you know, what comes next here or? Or, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, bittersweet feelings there about the, uh, the ownership
0: change? I think there's a, you know, change is unnerving, right? So that's just universal. Um, and we've been going through plenty of it for 2020. So it's just another piece of the change aspect of things. But I think there's a feeling that for Utah, the fear is always whether the franchise will move. And you have somebody right. who has, you know, incredible wealth. Um, wealth that has been rarely seen in this marketplace. The Huntsmans were probably the only other family that ever got close to that type of wealth, and you have somebody who seems to be—you know—he grew up in Utah County. His parents, his parents were both PhDs, and he moved. They moved to Utah so that his uh, when his dad worked at BYU. Um, I think must you know, obviously as a PhD. So he grew up here. He played junior jazz basketball. He had his business success here. He had a moment when he owned Qualtrics when everyone told him he was supposed to go to Silicon Valley if he really wanted to make it. And he didn't do that. And so I think those symbolic moments are important to the organization. And there's another aspect of something that somebody said I thought, well, was there's probably nobody I've trusted more in the time of the jazz than the Millers, so I'm gonna trust with trust them as well with who they chose to continue the stewardship of the franchise. And I think that might be the overriding feeling on this. I know you went to the Qualtrics um, conference, right? Didn't you What that? He, he uh, Ryan Smith has been putting on kind of this massive Qualtrics, this business conference, obviously not this year, but and, and had amazing speakers, which might've included Adam Silver a few years ago, or might've included David Stern. I'm trying to remember who was there, but I believe if I remember correctly, you flew into town for that one.
1: I did so in 2019. I went to that Qualtrics conference. I mean, it blew my mind in terms of the size and scope of it. Largely because I knew almost nothing about that industry, so I didn't realize what a major uh, factor they were in all these different, uh, you know, in all these different avenues. I mean, basically, what they do is they take very detailed surveys of customers or uh, users online, and they're able to provide you know really comprehensive predictions about how they'll behave or what might motivate them or what else they might be interested in. And Adam Silver himself has actually been really uh, tied in and and interested in their kind of insights because of things like, how do we keep television viewers watching our games for longer? Uh, You'll probably remember when they were adjusting, uh, when the the TV timeouts would take place to try to smooth out um, the NBA's like visual product on television. I think that some of those changes were made with an eye towards kind of big data that a company like Qualtrics can uh, kind of pull together and give you insights about. So I was really impressed just by their overall scheme of things. I had the chance to talk to him um, briefly after his speech. And he's a very upbeat, friendly guy, obviously very passionate about basketball. There was really no question there. And I think that people might know him or his work from the jersey patch that the uh, the Jazz had and they were wearing for years there. So it does seem like kind of a natural fit. It felt like there was a trust factor between uh, Gail Miller and Ryan Smith. And I do think this is also uh, one thing that we could think about. This is all of our dreams, right? We all sort of grow up and imagine, well, if we had billions of dollars, what would we do? Well, we'd probably buy our our favorite sports franchise in our home market and then try to oversee it for 30 or 40 or 50 years. And I think that stability factor is really key here, too. I mean, if you're going from a a group that owned it for 35 years, you want a guy who's invested in the community and who's invested in the organization on a long-term basis. You don't necessarily want, like, a hedge fund guy who's going to come in try to make a quick profit in five or 10 years and then sort of move forward. And I do think that, you know, this guy's a really sharp businessman. There's no question. He put on a great sales pitch at his conference for what his uh, products are able to do. I mean, you know, he's a, I wouldn't call him slick, but he's very smooth on a microphone. I guess I'd put it that way. And I think he understands that if you do own a team, not only is it an investment in the community, but it's also a phenomenal long-term business investment, right? You look at the Millers. I read today that their first stake in the Jazz, they paid $8 million to buy 50% of that organization. They wind up selling their stake today for $1.66 billion. I mean, talk about an incredible return over the course of 35 years. So uh, if uh, you know, Ryan Smith able to match that kind of rate, he's going to be doing okay. But even if not, he's probably going to have a lot of fun along the way.
0: By the way, I remember 2019's Barack Obama spoke.
1: Right. I think he had Oprah Winfrey. I mean, it was clear they were trying to make a a real statement with the the kinds of headlining speakers that they had there. Um, You know, it was one after another during the 24 hours I was there. And uh, it's just because they touched so many different uh, businesses and and, and communications uh, uh, outlets. And I think that's sort of why they were able to get such an incredible sale price there in 2019. I mean, eight billion dollars. I mean, just for, for comparison's sake, I mean, the NBA's revenues are right around $8 billion annually, right? So, I mean, that gives you a sense of uh, the deep water that he's swimming in.
0: The NBA's schedule, is it out? What is happening? Have we begun negotiations? We'll touch on that as we continue with Ben Goliver, Washington Post national columnist. Follow him at Ben Golliver. Make you sure you subscribe as well to get his weekly newsletter. It's right there in his bio on Twitter. So the NBA went to the Board of Governors. The news got out December 22nd, 72 games. Uh, Travel sounds like it might be a little different. I'm hearing you go into a town and you play two games, which I think we should just do forever. It's good for the environment. It's good for travel. It's just we should just do that. And now Michelle Roberts, the head of the player Association, comes out and says, given all that is to be resolved between now and December 22nd, factoring that there will be financial risks by a later start date, it defies common sense that it can all be done in time. Our players deserve the right to have some runway so they can plan for a start that soon. The overwhelming response to the players that I have received to this proposal has been negative. The union and the players are analyzing all the information and will not be rushed. We have requested and are receiving data from the parties involved and we will work on a counter proposal as expeditiously as possible. I have absolutely no reason to believe that we will have a decision by Friday and I cannot and will not view Friday as a drop dead date. What's going on?
1: Well, look, I mean, the NBA kind of uh, floated out its plan and it did seem very early and very aggressive, but you could also see the the benefits of trying to just, you know, bite the bullet and get this upcoming season going. Um, I think when you look around the league, you've had eight teams that haven't played since March. You've got 22 teams that haven't played since early September because those are the teams that were eliminated by the end of the first round. And you've got some very powerful and influential teams with very powerful and influential players who had to play all the way until about two weeks ago and they're exhausted and they don't want to play anymore. And they want to play, you know, uh, they want as much downtime as they can get. And, you know, the proposal of December 22nd would create a situation where the off season this year, in other words, from the the date of the last finals game to the first regular season game would be almost cut in half uh, compared to uh, the prior year. So that's a huge sacrifice there. The benefits, of course, is you'd get more television revenue from having uh, Christmas as your, you know, around your start date. You'd have more television revenue from getting your playoffs back to April, May and June. And you'd also be on your normal cycle. So the following year, uh, you know, coming out of uh, hopefully coming out of the coronavirus, you would just be back to a normal situation where you have your typical offseason summer. Players could play in the Olympics if if they wanted in in July 2021. And you go forward from there. So I think the NBA was trying to sell this as kind of, you know, let's just bite the bullet, get through this. I know it's going to be tough, but uh, this is the the best thing for business. And I can understand why the players would push back. Now, if they dig in their heels here, they are pretty much running out of time. And so I I do think that we're going to have uh, an answer pretty quickly within the next few days about how serious the players are really about potentially sacrificing some of that extra revenue uh, you know, what's the price that they put on the extra time off? I guess that's really what this whole thing boils down to, because we're really talking about a matter of a few weeks. And, uh, you know, if the players decide they want to, you know, push this thing out until, say, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, um, you know, the the money that's being sacrificed there, I'm sure the owners are going to turn back, back around to the players and say, look, I mean, this is coming out of your side here. You know, we're, we're giving you our proposal and, uh, you know, you guys got to make this thing full. So, uh, you know, it, it is definitely in flux. Uh, but I can see the NBA's perspective on this. I don't know where you come down. Uh, I don't personally want to turn around as quickly as they're describing, but if that's what it takes uh, to you know, pr- uh, create, I guess, the best possible financial environment, and it does get us back on schedule, I can see the benefits to that.
0: I feel as though the back end is the most important part of this conversation. Of course. Of course. That getting 21-22 somewhere in a sense so that you can actually have some level of normalcy is actually so important. And I, I actually take kind of the biggest part of the story is a little bit of a concession that this is not going to be anywhere near a normal season this year.
1: Completely, I think that they're basically saying we can't expect to have real amounts of fans in the arena, even if we were to delay it two months. does that two months really buy us any time? and I to me, that's being dictated by the coronavirus. It's hitting record levels this past weekend. You know, if you want to call it the third wave, go ahead. It has not receded as much as they had hoped by this point uh, when they were beginning discussions about the bubble early in the summer, and so they're not feeling like a delay of a month or two is really going to generate any more revenue by getting fans in seats. So they're essentially saying, well, we're we're almost playing next year, almost as a made-for-television event to a large degree. And uh, we might as well try to do that sooner rather than later, because why not?
0: I think they're right on this one. I, I think the other one is, you know, Mark Stein had a story today. I've heard from other people. The dollar figure on playing December twenty second, and compared to the nineteenth of eighteenth of January, is one hundred fifty million or something crazy like that. Like I, like I don't want to say I don't want to dismiss player health. It was
1: more than that actually. It was five hundred million. It was five hundred million. I believe.
0: Yeah. Sorry. Um, I I I don't want to dismiss player health. I don't want to dismiss how tired, you know, Miami and Denver and L A and. Boston are, who who were the last teams there. At the same time, you know what? None of us are doing what we really want to do right now. Right? Like, everyone is sacrificing in some way. Everybody would love to go out for dinner. Everybody would like to go back into an office. Everybody's jobs have been changed. And I feel like a little bit on the players' front, like, sorry, guys, but this is just how it is. And this is, we got to go. We got to play.
1: I'll say this, putting myself in the position of a player or for the the players association representation, my biggest concern would not be the start date. My biggest concern would be what are the health and safety protocols if we're not playing in a bubble, right? Can can you tell us that we're going to be in a safe situation where the risk of contracting this virus is as minimal as possible if we have to fly from city to city constantly, across a six-month season, right? Because there will be an extra degree of risk if you're not in the bubble. But how much risk there is could vary a lot based on what the game plan is. So to me, um, I understand the need for rest. I totally understand the need for downtime. I'll admit, uh, after three months in the bubble, I was, you know, pretty burned out. And once I heard that we're turning around in two months, it kind of, you know, made my eyes bulge. And I was like, oh my God, are we serious? This is the game plan? Um, But I think to me, like, it's not just about the timing. It's about the execution too. I mean, rushing into playing games for television revenue is, is one thing. And I understand doing that, but rushing and cutting corners on player health is unacceptable to me. So if I was the players, that would be my most important uh, bargaining point. I would say, look, you you kept everybody safe during the bubble. We really appreciate that. We know it came at a massive expense, but if you want these players to go out and, and put their health at risk, to be playing 72 games across the country, you better have airtight plans uh, to keep those guys uh, as safe as possible, whether that means empty arenas, whether that means special travel accommodations, whether that means uh, you know hotels or, or the series-type format where you're traveling less frequently so you can stay in the same market, whether that even means hub cities. I mean, who knows what it could be. I think, to me, that should be the highest priority for the players as opposed to just the start date, but that's just my opinion.
0: Ben Golliver, Washington Post, national columnist. I'm David Locke. Thanks for tuning in. NBA draft coverage. Chad Ford's NBA Big Board and the new show Locked on NBA Draft is coming out shortly. Keep an eye out for it. Have a wonderful day.